0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with David Melding, who since the outset of the Assembly has been the Assembly Member for South Wales Central. He's a Conservative, of course, but a very liberal one with a small L. David, you're from Neath, I think, aren't you? What What did your parents do?
1: They had a family business, uh, which my father established and was supported by my mother, and my mother worked in it. What sort of business? So it was in uh, fireplaces, basically, and fine stone and marble, you know, to make... Uh, you know, this was the 60s when it all started, and people used to have sort vast bespoke fireplaces or bars and all sorts of things would be made, you know, uh, in slightly larger houses then, I think. So the market changed a bit to uh, wooden surrounds, Adam style, very, very popular. So uh, it, the business has evolved uh, over time as well. So it, it's still there and run by my brother. Was it a political family? I, not with a big P, but certainly with a small P. So we often talked uh, politics and the wider family as well. It was a family in which, and still is, I, I visited my mother last weekend as it happened, and at the lunch table on Sunday lunch, lots of vigorous discussion about uh, the latest issues. And as long as I can remember, that was the case in, in my uh, immediate and extended family. And was it always Conservative? No, certainly not necessarily along the orthodox lines. You know, being brought up in it, you'd think, well, definitely Labour, but it, it was all of, always a little bit, I think, you know, testing and questioning. I mean, perhaps the small business background had, had something to, uh, you know, to do with it in in a. Uh, Society then was still certainly dominated by steel and a little bit of coal still, you know, up in the Neckland family then. And uh, uh, the big industries, which were, you know, very, very important and an essential part of our heritage. But, you know, for my family, it was was a slightly different uh, economic situation they were in. So at what stage did you get drawn towards the Conservative Party? I was interested in politics at school and then when i was in the sixth form so this was the late 70s because the labour party was uh, in government but i think it's fair to say it was a uh, government that was uh, facing a, a range of difficulties there was an expectation that perhaps we'd have the first woman prime minister and excitement growing and it was almost countercultural generally as well to uh, to be saying well you know perhaps we need a woman prime minister and i needed to give the conservatives a a chance, and th- that also, I think, encouraged me to look beyond uh, the immediate dominant tradition around me, which was obviously still uh, strongly labour then. But you also wanted to study politics, didn't you? Because you went on well, to university. Well, I-, I went to university actually to study economics, and very sensibly, uh, the uh, the way the degree is constructed, you had to take a range of subjects in the first year, and I found economics too mathematical, really, for my uh, my sort of skills. I couldn't switch to economic history because uh, Cardiff didn't do a, a straight degree in economic history, but you could do, a, you could do it as, as a second subject, as a minor subject. Um, so that's what happened. I, I switched to politics, which I had taken as, uh, as one of the options in my first year, and I really enjoyed, so I switched to politics and I did the uh, economic history as a minority subject as well, which I greatly enjoyed. And of course, after the financial crash and the end of rational markets and that we can get via maths to all the economic truths, Lo and behold, economic history comes back into fashion. So I, I, I think perhaps it, was, uh, it wasn't a bad idea uh, back in the early 80s to, uh, to take those courses. And I still remember a lot from uh, did American and British economic history and found it fascinating. Because, of course, you went over to study in the United States. I did. You? I went to uh, William and & Mary. And at Easter, I will be there for, for a week giving uh, lectures on... Britain after Brexit. I must say, Martin, that I was commissioned to do this uh, late last year, when there was perhaps an expectation that by April we would uh, have a firmer idea of what was going to happen. But uh, they're fascinated, obviously, by the whole political um, controversy and change of direction, and you know what this says. I think for uh, democracy in in Western in the Western world. And
0: what would you say? your studies in the United States did in terms of broadening your
1: perspective? Well, two things. I think I I really got a sense of the Anglosphere and that, to an extent, the North Atlantic English-speaking political community is, is a strong force. And we are very close cousins, I think, and there's a genuine connection there. And and that was really very powerful. And I've been very pro-American, not necessarily in favour of any particular American government's policies, but I I do think it it is is very much part of our culture as well and has had this sort of deep influence on us. I suppose in an intellectual way, I fell in love with federalism and uh, I didn't quite realise in 1984 I went over the... You know what would happen because you can imagine Martin in the mid nineteen eighties. Not many people thought devolution was going to come back very uh, soon, but eventually it did. And I think it gave me um, a lot of, of resources to you know, start to change my own thinking and and perhaps the Conservative parties as well as to you know how we should adapt to a new constitution that was essentially uh, decentralised rather than the old. British model of the unitary state.
0: And then when you came back to Britain after that, it was back to Wales, was it?
1: Yes. And what were you doing immediately after? The first thing I did, I completed my uh, thesis. So uh, that was about? So it was on the uh, comparison of the conservatism of Edmund Burke and Michael Okshock. So Edmund Burke is considered the classic conservative theorist, late 18th century. He was a wiggle, uh, particularly his uh, uh, reflections on the revolution in France. regarded as the sort of, uh, if I can irreverently put it this way, the communist manifesto of conservative thought. It's the key text. And then Michael Oakeshott was a 20th century uh, British philosopher, greatly influenced by uh, Thomas Hobbes, and regarded as the the finest, uh, I think, conservative thinker. Both sides of the Atlantic in many ways, uh, but certainly in Britain, uh, uh, the finest conservative thinker of the... 20th century though he, he was very i mean he was a philosopher he was he was not particularly interested in practical uh, politics but uh It it was a very uh, interesting comparison, I think, between the two thinkers and uh, they both had a deep love of language and, and, you know, reading each of them is is a complete joy. You see masters of language and and political thought. uh, They're they're great writers that I recommend uh, people, conservative or not, uh, to read them. But you could probably have been an academic. Well, I'm not so sure, but uh, yeah, you say that as if I should have become an academic, Martin. <laughs> no, I'm
0: not in any way seeking to be your uh, political contribution, but you are seen I, I as think, the sort of intellectual uh, um, totem of the Welsh Conservatives. I
1: think like. I'm more interested in ideas into practice, and that is a bit different. As I look back, that's probably what motivated me, really, and the great interest in political activity, which I have. So I I think that pushed me away from a direction of going uh, into academia. So you had to earn a living. When you came back, what did you do? (laughs) Well, I was completing my thesis, as I said, and then uh, I had a phone call asking me if I was interested in applying for the Welsh Affairs Desk in the Conservative Research Department and that's what I, I did. I applied, and I got offered the job, and I, I did that for three years. That was in central office, was so, it? Well, it was based in Pentline Road, in which you remember, Martin, the I do, great I do. sort of uh, mock Tudor mini-mansion on Pentline Road. And... I I was based there, but obviously up in London quite frequently. I was there until 1989 and overlapped with a certain David Cameron. Good Lord. Indeed, yes. (laughs) Yes. And then I think you had a couple of
0: jobs, didn't you, in the, what these days, Trinsley is called the Third sector? Yeah. Because you were at the Welsh...
1: Welsh Centre for International Affairs in the the Temple of Peace. Peace, A very fine
0: institution. Absolutely. So that... Gave you the opportunity to
1: extend your internationalism again? Yes, I, I, I'd, I'd always found the uh, United Nations fascinating. It was one of the places I, I went to visit when I was it was in America, uh, in New York. I I didn't know much about the Templar Peace or the Welsh Centre for International Affairs, to, to be truthful. I think I'd attended a couple of events when I was an undergraduate in Cardiff. But I was there six years, seven years I really enjoyed it. Again, ideas into practice uh, uh, broadly around the United Nations, but it, we also did conferences on uh, the, the international legal system, NATO, but uh, a lot of the activity was UN-based. And it was like a supporters' club for the UN. I think it's fair to say how it started. Obviously, it had real rigor as well, so it could uh, look at developments. And then... Um, the UN was going through a lot of changes because 1989 uh, saw the uh, end of the Cold War in essence and it seemed that a new age for the UN was going to open up, which didn't quite transpire but peacekeeping and conflict res- resolution, um, these activities were under great examination the reform of the UN the New World Order, you, you, you will remember that uh, phrase uh, from the early 90s and I, I think 1989 was the most remarkable year in, in terms of change is possible and and new growth is possible. And uh, we've taken a few steps back in some ways, perhaps since then, but overall that sort of liberation that Europe had in in 1989 and then worked through in the 90s was very important. But of course we we did have the Yugoslav war very soon after, in 92, 93, and it was, I think, an important time to, to be looking at the fundamentals of international relations, and I enjoyed my work there very much.
0: And then, I think your last job before joining the Assembly was with the
1: National Carers? It was. So uh, now called Carers Wales, but it took me to a very different field. I'm probably the most important job in terms of what I've done in the Assembly, because I've had the health and social care brief, and I was chair of the health committee in the second Assembly and working for care as wales well. so was really important in developing uh, uh, my uh, interest in that area of social policy and a hugely important area you know in terms of uh, the amount of uh, informal care that uh, is undertaken by by people looking after uh, relatives and friends so i think that was a really important job it's quite a political job it was a campaigning organisation small p obviously but It was doing a lot in terms of the Carers Act and the need for respite care. And, well, the the first Royal Commission then on on the future of social care was held by Labour. We're kind of back to that in many ways again, thinking through the fundamentals. We haven't quite designed the system that we really need for the 21st century yet. But it it was a very interesting job. And whilst I was there, uh, the Labour Party uh, won an election, so I the change in dynamics and and what was possible because obviously a change in government is very significant for so be ninety seven uh, um, you know for organizations that, that uh, are you know active in, in trying to get legislative and social and political change so yeah so I was there from 96 to well the election in 99 to the assembly so it's a very interesting period with the general election in ninety seven and the referendum. Obviously.
0: What were you doing
1: at the referendum? Then? Well, I um, I should say when I was appointed director of Carers Wales, I moved to that job uh, whilst I was candidate, a Conservative candidate for Cardiff Central, prospective candidate for Cardiff Central. So this general election in the offing, but because uh, Carers National were a political organisation in the sense of or campaigning organisation, sorry, is a better way of putting it. They were very relaxed about having staff members that were fighting elections. And indeed, someone did fight on the Labour side and, and, and won, so became an MP. They weren't put off by the fact that I, I know I was a, a candidate. I fought a vigorous campaign in, in Cardiff Central, though it, it, it was a remarkable year to be a candidate. You know, I think the only time I've experienced people crossing the road to tell you they weren't going to vote for you, it was really quite astonishing. But I, I obviously fought very, very actively and hard for that seat, but lost by a lot. Uh, I, I, and then the referendum followed very quickly, as you recall, uh, uh, Martin. And I I wasn't as active in the, in the referendum campaign because I, I thought it wasn't really fair to uh, care as well as to have two campaigns so quickly. I did do a number of engagements for the uh, No campaign. And I wrote the main briefing material for the Conservative Party to use in the No campaign, which is now deposited at the National Library in in Aberystwyth, so people, you know, I've not hidden my antecedents in terms of... uh, But for someone uh,
0: who was interested in federalism... But but, but I I wasn't as active
1: in the campaign for for those reasons, but I wasn't invisible either, but I definitely campaigned, you know, No. Yeah, uh,
0: but for someone who was interested in federalism and had been for quite a few years at that stage, why did you campaign or why were you on the No side?
1: My argument was that, as a union state, the best option for us was to have a unitary constitution until we were very sure we wanted to move to something else, and that something else seemed to me a federal constitution. And I felt devolution was uh, neither one or the other, and w- with that sense, to uncontroll a system. And it, you know, that broadly has been my argument throughout, and I've, you know, I've, I've urged more federal mechanisms because I see them... As more secure than the devolve model, which it, it you know never really uh, results in a proper constitutional settlement with very firm boundaries. So you know that that was basically why I uh, I took the position I did, and I felt that if we were going to a federal state, then you had to make that as a big decision, but do it you know in considered way. Now labor obviously right, they fought. A you know, it has to be said about a general election, uh, saying that they would bring in devolution subject to referenda. So what they did was completely constitutionally legitimate But, you know, they went at it pretty quickly, didn't they? And uh, reflecting so. on the, you know, in terms of how to campaign and get something through, I, I think what they did it will fascinate people for, for for many decades. It was very, very well-conducted but i just felt that rather than devolution we needed a sort of a fuller constitutional review and settlement if we were going to move in that direction because that would be the strongest for uh, or safest for 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 the union so that was my basic position then
0: once the referendum had taken place and it was clear that an assembly was going to be established you quickly changed your agenda.
1: well I, you know truth uh, told the week before, uh, your readers may not, well, many of them would uh, remember, and even those that were uh, old enough to vote in, in 97 will, will not necessarily recall, that the Scottish referendum was held one week before the Welsh one. I think the only grounds to have done that that it, it could have had some influence on, on, on the result in Wales, and I think it It did. The argument that Labour obviously advanced was that you needed to have these two referendas distinct events, so they were separated by a week. So yeah, you can uh, look at that argument and, and make uh, your, your own sort of judgment or pass your own judgment on it. But I do think it was clever in that people like me were then faced with a situation well, we know there's going to be devolution, it's going to happen in Scotland. And is it better that Wales joins in that scheme and... Does it make the Scottish arrangements less exceptional? Because if they're done in two places, and then very soon after they've also done in Northern Ireland, then it's perhaps not as dangerous to the union, because just in Scotland it's just a very extraordinary situation not to have that system applied in other parts of the UK. So I thought very hard in the last week of the campaign... Uh, how I should vote because of what had happened in Scotland. And I, I felt I had to vote no because it, it would have been, you know, hypocritical to have campaigned and argued in advance of, of the uh, uh, of the referendum day that, that no was the best option. But, it, you know, it was a difficult decision to sort of make. And I have to say I didn't think the result would it was going to be anything like as close as it was. So I, I kind of thought, well, this is going to go through, so I can still safely vote no, knowing that we will stand there, that will perhaps urge people to be cautious about how devolution's developed and uh, the need to look at, as I said, the whole sort of British question and balancing the constitution more generally. But I, I was in a bit of a sort of intellectual sort of, uh, sort of unease in, in, in that week, the final week of the campaign. And then, of course,
0: you decided to offer yourself for selection and election. Yep. Yep. And what were your thoughts at that time about involving
1: yourself in the new institution? Well, I thought immediately that, despite you know, the closeness of the uh, result, that, that it was important that we had a good conservative presence and that we accepted the result and started to work in the new institution. So I, I think any sort of absentee type uh, or boycotting uh, the institution would be very damaging. Not that that was really discussed as a serious proposition, this desire to uh, get into active politics, I suppose, reflecting on the, you know, the parliamentary prospects weren't great because obviously you had a devastating result uh, defeat in ninety seven. So I thought, well, rule nothing out and see uh, see what you think about the assembly. And uh, I got more and more interested, and and, and there was obviously some talk about. Uh, how it was all going to work, and excitement building. So, I, yeah, I threw my hat in the ring. And then I. there's always a lottery element to politics, and I got selected for the Vale of Glamorgan. Of and, and that, although I didn't win that result, it did get me the, the second place on, on the list, which was eventually what got me here, here. And you've managed to stay ever since. And hang on ever since, yeah.
0: So there are a lot of people who have said to me over the years, David Melding is a really nice guy and he adopts the perspective that we who are not conservatives would adopt towards lots of social issues. Why on earth is he a conservative?
1: Why have you stuck with the conservatives all this time, David? Well, I, I think, you know, that both main parties are broad churches and that that's... Uh, and we need... It. You know, in our first past the post system at uh, parliamentary level, you have these two main traditions: centre left and centre right. And centre right has to include a, a liberal wing, and then obviously it goes to more, uh, what they sometimes call more traditional conservatives. Though I think uh, you cannot give the liberal conservatives as traditional. So I've never felt uncomfortable. I, I sometimes uh, used to tease my uh, liberal Democrat friends and say, well, the proper place for a liberal is in the Conservative Party. And, uh, you know, Winston Churchill obviously demonstrates that. You know, I think he was a liberal all his life, basically. Since the late 19th century, regular infusions from uh, liberal and radical side of politics into the Conservative Party. So, so that's what I would see as my sort of tradition and routine. But I, on economic affairs, I am, you know, f- 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 firmly of uh, the, the, the view that we should uh, keep taxes as uh, low as is reasonably you know, possible. I think enterprise is very, very important, the arguments of efficiency. The constitutional positions I've taken, you know, are firmly conservative in, in I would argue, even in putting a position forward for acceptance of, uh, of a devolved constitution. You know, it's... Uh, it's seeing a change, and then once that decision has been made, not fighting against it. So I think that's uh, a very conservative attitude as well uh, to test any argument for change, but then when that change is made, to accept it and then to make it more rigorous. So I think uh, that that's been uh, very much, um, you know, part of my my tradition. I think, in terms of the need for uh, lots of power bases in in society, is very very important. So a dispersed model, and uh, I think then that's an essential part of the conservative uh, philosophy. And as is, you know, the emphasis on on personal liberty as well. I think these are very very powerful arguments. They are also liberal ones. It has to be said. But I I just found that I found the Conservative Party a better home for for that suite of uh, of beliefs. But uh,
0: but in recent years. Isn't it fair to say that those within the Conservative Party have become more strident in their right-wing approach? Doesn't that make it sometimes a little uncomfortable for someone like you who's more of a liberal Tory?
1: Well, I I don't think that's reflected in how the party behaves in terms of uh, selecting candidates. And uh, you know, one has suggested to me that... uh, it's had an impact, and you know, you could see I've been reselected, and I've said some quite challenging things over the years. So I, I think all parties need the uh, this broad appeal, and they need some members that are, you know, pushing it and testing it. And I think, you know, I think that's uh, what keeps parties uh, fresh and relevant. Really, I think uh, in terms of uh, the approaching European question, I think that's, you know, pretty much what your question implies. I'm not sure it would be true of the more general social and economic position that, that you know, Mrs May's government has taken, incidentally. But I suppose on the European issue, there's been a sense of uh, of more um, assertiveness and what some have said, the nationalist tradition within the Conservative Party. And I'm, I am a little suspicious of, of that, though I think nationalism is an important force. And, uh, and we're all nationalists to, to some extent. I think if uh, we, we reflect on our uh, on our opinions and how they're formed, and it's important to you know, get, get the, the the sense of confidence and and resource that you have from your your local community, then the national community as well. These things are really important. But uh, I, I think in terms of our relation with Europe, it is. You know, perhaps not being unionist enough, and, and th- th- that has been disappointing. But, you know, the people have made a decision that they, they, they don't want the European Union, or at least uh, not enough of them did. But, uh, because you were on the side of wanting to remain. Oh, very firmly, yeah. yeah. I do see... I think it's going to be more difficult in the f- for us in the future, by no means impossible, but it would be more difficult to argue that uh, the union that is the United Kingdom should continue... The union that is the the European Union, is not compatible with that vision. I think that's you know difficult to to uh, advance really. I think if you're open to larger entities, which you know was first what constructed the uh, United Kingdom then you should also be open to you know new ways of working on a continental level which is you know what the european union is about and i think we're going to see in terms of trading policy we still have to be very much aware of what's happening in europe we're going to have to cooperate a lot in terms of environmental issues you know simply because that's the space that now needs to be tackled you can't you can't really have an independent environmental policy in in Britain, that's completely at odds with what's happening in Europe. We'll want to influence their decisions, and they'll want us to be making decisions that don't, uh, you know, cause them uh, great uh, you know, challenges and, uh, and and difficulties in terms of, you know, if we were polluting a lot and or they were, you know, you know that's why you have international organisations. It's to really give you a greater sense of uh, of control and power over. over of issues like international trade and environment and security through NATO, you know. Mm. And I've always been comfortable about that, and I think our our political uh, culture is going to be tested now by how we reconcile these two um, desires. It's very important to feel as connected as we can to our own political culture and state. And there's no doubt, incidentally, that the challenge for those in Europe has always been how do you give the citizen a stronger role and how do you make the European Union more democratic because it is distant from people and I think that's the main reason that the referendum went way it did.
0: But a lot of people in your party have got a, what seems to me visceral hatred of the European Union and even people that one would regard as quite moderate in their outlook within the Conservative Party are being hounded out of it. I think of Nick Bowles, for example, who is somebody who voted twice in favour of the withdrawal agreement mm-hmm. uh, reached by the Prime Minister with the European Union. And that and yet because he was against a, a no deal, essentially he's been hounded out of his mm-hmm. local party. And that's very worrying,
1: isn't it? Well he said that he said a sort of Polite disagreement with his party and thought it was best to have a clean break and he remains, I, I understand that he's now going to become a member of the, the, the National Party. I should say that uh, you know, the, the, this is process, but you, you can be a member of the Conservative Party by your local association or you can be a member of you know, the party nationally. So he's going to shift to party nationally, He'll re- retain the Conservative whip and be you know, in the parliamentary party, there's no question about that. On this issue of visceral hatred, I, I hope that that is a very, very small minority. It's you know it's perfectly acceptable to be against the concept of the European Union. It is a I think uh, an, an important question where where you, you stand on on the level of cooperation that you require. So you'll have the you know some that say look it, it's best when sovereign nations cooperate, but that's as far as you can go. You should never pool sovereignty, and then. And, and that, that I think is the argument of those that are firmly against the European Union. But then there's a whole range of people that just feel uh, uh, this particular way of uh, organising uh, European uh, governance is what they don't like. So they, you know, they'll point to the fact that uh, the, the, the EU has gone into too many uh, um, areas of, uh, of national life, and the single currency is, uh, you know, perhaps. Uh, Led to a a very divided Europe as well, and one overly dominated by Germany. And again, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I mean it's the basis of reasonable debate, isn't it? So I think so. uh, so We've got uh, you know a a lot of people in the party that they say you know they're still European and that they think European identity and cooperation is important, but they do not like the way the EU is developed. So they are you know the, the levers, and then. The bulk of the party seemed to me, to be, Remain and Reform, and then obviously you've got the likes of me that you know believe the the, uh, one that the EU, d- despite its undoubted mistakes in some big areas like the single currency, but but it's still broadly a, a huge success story, and that it, it and the ideal of it also holds us in, and that we should uh, hold on to it and develop it, and that it, it it is something that could be an exemplar for the other parts of. Uh, uh, the world as well, and, and I'm disappointed because, uh, you know, that's for at least a generation, it seems to be, and is is now not going to be the case. You know, I, I, Martin, I'm not sure we want to rerun the the the, the campaign, but um, I, I think political historians will look back on this and wonder why many people, and I suppose, you know, you have to say people like me that did didn't counter this antipathy that the Maastricht process uh, gained. Uh, I think John Major is a remarkable uh, prime minister. Uh, When we look back uh, more objectively, I think a a reinterpretation of his uh, premiership is is, is due, but, I mean, it won't happen for a while because of the whole Brexit uh, situation. But, you know, Maastricht, we got opt-outs from the social chapter. We weren't in Schengen we opted out of the single currency until such a time as we wanted to go in, i.e. we could wait to see if it worked, and minute we thought it was working, we could go in. Hardly a brutal European bureaucracy sort of uh, forcing us uh, in a particular direction uh, that we didn't want to go. It was one of the triumphs of British diplomacy, an outstanding success, and yet it led to this growing wing of the party that stood out against things, uh, um, I'd say European, thing, the, the, the way the EU was developing. And then the other astonishing achievement in the 90s under uh, John Major was the expansion of the EU. We were talking a little earlier about the end of the Cold War. And the principle to extend the EU into Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, it wasn't just Britain argued for that, but we were absolutely the, you know, in the vanguard of that. Massive uh, achievement for British uh, diplomacy. And even going back to the 80s, the single market, British invention. The European single market, a British invention. Lord Cofield was sent there by Mrs Thatcher to secure that. And all this business of take back control, it was a British government under Mrs Thatcher in the 1980s that pushed for majority voting on these trading regulations so that people couldn't twist the market around and undermine it for their own selfish advantage that there should be free competition and for that you needed fair rules of trade and I, I do find it strange how we, we are where we are but you know it's happened and I think it's for many reasons beyond Europe including some that are can be put at uh, the EU's door but uh it, it, it's mixed up in all sorts of things. The you know the parliamentary scandals, I think, over expenses. The uh, financial crisis. I think that's had a big effect. or in all, Western democracies.
0: Are you worried for the future?
1: Um, I think it's always good to be concerned and you know alert to danger. I am optimistic. I think we will make the right decisions within whatever scenario we find ourselves. I, and I think. You oh, no, this is why I've not supported a second referendum. I've said to my many Remainer friends that want a second referendum, I said, "Look, that's not going to work. That would undermine the democratic principle. That's really the, the heart of our political life. And that the, the, the best thing is to allow a generation or so to pass, fully test whether Britain can be uh, uh, I don't know how you describe it, but whether Britain can develop a independent trade policy. That seems to be the essence of what Brexit it promises us if you uh, uh, listen to those that have advanced the uh, Brexit cause and we will just see whether it worked and we need to go through that and if it doesn't work then you know, the European option will be open to a future generation though probably not with the opt-outs though whether there will still be a single currency I think you know, that is uh, I doubt the single currency would have extended all over the EU even in 20 years but you know, that's a prediction that's perhaps uh, perilous to make. should be said, the EU faces a lot lot of challenges, but I think the EU will reform. I think it's big enough, the ideal is strong enough, people want it. And I think what people forget is for many, many countries in Europe, look at the Republic of Ireland, the European Union has given them the full confidence to enjoy their national political life. Has meant pooling sovereignty, but they've realised that the, the security of their national political life is actually greatly assisted by European Union. Both in the way it manages the you know the great challenges of our day, like a, a uh, climate change, but also how it secured peace. And I think part of you know the psychological reason why we are where we are in Britain is like Britain and the Soviet Union were the only two countries to get through the Second World War with their own theory of mind, of political identity and sovereignty and statehood intact. Whilst the Soviet Union was invaded, it did push back the Nazis. Britain was never invaded. We stood firm. We were platform then for the free world to liberate Europe. The British state succeeded. If you're Danish, if you're Dutch, if you're Greek, all these countries you know, were invaded by the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, sorry, were invaded by, uh, by 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 Germany. If you're German, you have to think about what your state did and what it wanted to do, the sort of Europe it wanted. If you're Italian, you know you're an ally of Germany, and even if you were like on the edge and neutral, like Sweden and Spain, well, you know you were neutral, but on sufferance, you more or less had to accept German foreign policy in terms of you know the, any goods they wanted or you know the supplying ball bearings of steel or whatever it was, that uh, Sweden was uh, required to do. And you realise your statehood, your sovereignty, was massively compromised. I mean, even if the French, you know, you know who have this incredible sense of their own identity, they, they were invaded twice by Germany, nearly conquered in the First World War, occupied and conquered in the Second It's a massive effect on how they view things. We didn't have that experience. And I call this, for those countries, I I, I think the Second World War was the axial experience in terms of they had to cooperate and they had to go beyond nation, not to abolish nation, but to create a supranational organisation. And we always found that difficult because our nation, our state, did defend us and... You know, and it was at this most triumphant, you may say, you know, the greatest moment, perhaps. Uh, when we look at Parliament at the moment, going through these you know, hugely, hugely significant issues. I'm reminded, reminded of those days in May 1940, when, you know, it sacked one prime minister and hired a new one, and decided, no, we will not go for a peace treaty with Germany, we will stand firm and oppose them. Massive moment, and I think... I think having not gone through the experience of all the other states, of or most of the other states of Europe, we found that difficult, you know, to let go a bit of, uh, and to recognise that sovereignty, to to retain a large amount of your own sovereignty, you have to pool, pool some of it and let it go a bit. You know, it's a paradox, isn't it? You know, it's, it, these are very, very complicated things, and they go to the heart of identity, and uh, I I just think... For too many people, from the start, the European Union or the European Community, as it was before, just went against the grain of of, of a lot of people. And uh, I think now that this decision has been made on Brexit, people will really see whether you know that vision of of being apart from Europe and no doubt trying to construct good relations with them, you know, can lead to uh, a, a sustainable and rewarding sort of. Um, future for us. The one danger I, I do see, and I, I don't think this is common into or oh, widespread, but there are some in politics today that want to see the EU to fa- fail. And some of the rhetoric, I'm afraid, has been like you know the EU is of you know, yesterday's institution. You've had Mike Pompeo, the uh, Secretary of State, the American Secretary of State, saying that organisations that fetter national sovereignty need. To be abolished or uh, words, really to, that effect, or words to that effect. I think those are worrying trends. The World Trade Organization is coming under severe assault from the Americans and the Chinese. Well, you know, it seems to be our trade policies only be possible if there's a robust World Trade Organization with a, basically a court that can arbitrate disputes. The Americans and the Chinese have, you know, given notice that they, they think that needs to be questioned now and that any disputes... On trading matters, should be a matter of negotiating between the two sides that are in dispute. Well, I think the stronger, bigger <laughs> uh, player in the playground is going to win that one all the time. You know, So there are, there, there are some worrying trends out there. But overall, I think the logic of uh, rules-based politics will, will win the day because that's the only way we can really be secure and prosperous for the future. Back to Wales for a moment.
0: Coming up to the 20th anniversary of the Assembly, of course, ever since day one, it has had Labour-led governments, mostly Labour-only governments. Where do you see things going in 2021? Do you think that it really is, and I would expect you as a Conservative to say that you wanted to end Labour power, but do you actually see a real possibility in 2021 of Labour being out of office?
1: Well, we've seen, um, you know, Labour during the period of devolution, sort of going from clearly the dominant party to now the leading party in a field of, you know, three or four parties. So I think that process is likely to continue. Obviously, the Labour Party faces a real uh, sort of test, really, in terms of how it's going to develop. I think it's quite feasible that in 21, Labour maybe still the leading party but with both Plaid and Conservatives not very far behind so we could see Labour on you know mid-20s and Plaid and the Conservatives both you know uh, upper teens or low 20s you know that sort of result I think would be a dramatic change then uh, in terms of um, what is possible. Uh, If you know, a new combination can be found, then uh, we we would face the prospect of Labour being out of office for the first time in uh, the devolved era. And I I do think that fundamental change, and therefore the choice the electorate have, is important. Now, until really, certainly 2011, the Assembly has been, you know, building up the resilience of devolution and and strengthening the the model. I, I think... We, we had a, a, an interesting Fourth Assembly in some of the law we passed, and we were showing ourselves as a law-making body. The Fifth Assembly, I'm afraid, has itself been dominated by Brexit, even, at, at the, even, even here. Uh, so it, what it must be like in Parliament, i dread to think. But I do think this whole democratic question comes back at some point of, OK, we have our own institutions, but do we have real choice within them? And that only happens when Labour loses an election and is out of government. But I must emphasise—I've always said this—that you shouldn't blame Conservatives or Plaid uh, supporters. You shouldn't blame the Labour Party f- for this. It, it's the other parties that have to come up with a viable alternative. Labour play the team that you know—the teams that go out against them—and uh, I—they I have a proud record and tradition in in, in Wales, which uh, you know clearly has merit. Otherwise, they wouldn't win elections, would they? So they need to be taken very, very seriously, and uh, I think it is, it's up to the Conservatives and to come up with an alternative. Of course, that requires some level of cooperation between the parties. That nearly happened once in 2007, but at the moment, there's some intimation sometimes that it might happen, but uh, I... My advice to both leaders, really, uh, Plaid and Conservative, is, is you know to get on with it and uh, start the preparations. At least, you know, talk to each other and see if there is a platform there to be uh, negotiated. I, I think the you know the people of Wales deserve a, an alternative, and it should be fully tested to see if one can be constructed. Just one final question, David.
0: In two thousand and sixteen, you'd been the deputy presiding mm-hmm. officer for um, a term and many people assumed that you were the obvious choice to become the presiding officer. Why did you not go for that role?
1: Well, I, I think I should have said about a year or 18 months before that I did not see myself as, uh, in that role. But it's it's difficult, really, to go on being a deputy, uh, having said, well, that's it, you don't want the top job, because that can sort of undermine your role. And, and there, you know, as a deputy, you're you're obviously there... To, to support the presiding officer and the last thing the presiding officer wants is you know someone to cause that sort of instability but i i think in truth i did not expect to get re-elected in 2016 and i think my mistake was really not to think through the uh you know the chance of that you know I would be in a position where it was offered or seemed likely to be offered you know it's very difficult i say to people to do a top job you've got it's got to give you a sense of relish no one would go into top job w- w- without feeling a bit daunted yeah and you shouldn't I mean yeah, yeah you know you should you should feel oh, well, Yeah. know well, what's this going to be like but you should want to do it and relish that you know and and I couldn't honestly say I did I never really felt right when I was thinking through well what would I would I be in that ro- uh, role and so I felt I did give it you know I got I thought very hard over the weekend. And we have to make a quick decision as well. This is the other thing. It's very public. It's not like most jobs where you, you apply or withdraw and it's uh, quite discreet. But I felt with that sense of real you know, doubt about whether I wanted to do it, um, it was best to sort of... Uh, withdraw and that you know that was that and I've not regretted the decision at all I I think I was absolutely right to to do that you know the, the one thing it has allowed me is, is to be a very active politician again because obviously the presiding officer principally is the referee great authority and influence but it's mostly behind the scenes and uh, uh and I really respect you know, those that Put themselves forward and do, the, you know, that uh, and perform that role because it is a very testing one. So, but that 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 was why. David Melting, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to my podcast. Martin Shipton meets. We'll be back for more next week.